Federal Drive is presented by GEHA, Government Employees Health Association, proudly providing health and dental benefits to federal employees and their families. Visit GEHA.com. It's one thing to be controlled at work. Everyone has dealt with controlling bosses and coworkers who try. It's another thing to be in control of your work and your life. And one thing can make the difference. For what that is, here's longtime federal management professor Bob Tobias. And Bob, what can make the difference between being controlled and being in control? The single word answer, Tom, is telework. Telework. And interestingly enough, OPM just recently reported that 87% of those federal employees eligible to do telework last year actually participated in the program. And they also reported that more agencies were meeting their performance standards. And finally, they reported that employee attitudes, recruitment, and retention also increased. Now, for me, I think there's a direct link. I think that attitudes and and retention and recruitment and performance increased because 87% of those eligibles were doing telework. What's interesting to me is that whether you're a GS2 or you're a member of the SES, when you have more control over your work, when you work, you perform more work. Yes. I mean, that has been stated by a lot of teleworkers that kind of wryly say, well, gosh, I work many more hours because I'm not commuting and I'll just sit down at the computer in the evening and do things. But this is primarily for knowledge workers. Is it fair to the people, and there's hundreds of thousands of federal employees that by virtue of their location basis for the work, can't telework? Well, it isn't a question of fairness, I don't think. I think it's a question of maximizing employee ability and willingness to do more work. And ironically, it was the fear of increased employee control and decreased managerial control that led managers over the years to deny requests for telework. And of course, that all turned around with COVID when everybody was forced to do telework. And what, of course, emerged is that when federal employees were given the authority to break up their workday to take care of a kid or a sick parent, they acted responsibly by returning to work and producing more. Trust emerged between managers and employees. And I think that's a very potent elixir. There was no trust before COVID that employees would or could or would be interested in performing more work, but COVID proved that they could and they would. Right. So that required some reorientation on the part of managers to understand what it is they needed to measure. And it's not time and attendance per se, but output and deadlines. Exactly. Exactly, Tom. And, you know, the crucial ingredient to increased performance, as it turns out, I think, is choice. Because the recently released Federal Employee Viewpoint survey revealed that federal employees who chose teleworking at least three days of work scored 77.1 on the Employee Engagement Index. And the Employee Engagement Index measures how engaged employees are and, as a result, how much more they produce. 
But what was interesting to me is those who chose in-person work and did not telework, they could have, but they chose not to, scored 73.1, which is very, very close. So if you have the choice to do in-person, you have the choice to do telework, you score high. But in contrast, those who couldn't do telework because of their work or chose not to only scored 58.5. So the reality is those who are required to be in person and don't have choice scored 58.5 on the employee engagement index. We're speaking with Bob Tobias, a retired professor in the key executive leadership program at American University, former NTEU president before that. And I think it's fair to say, too, that the COVID probably forced the issue in the sense that there were technological means that agencies quickly employed or deployed to be able to allow a lot more people to telework than could have from a technical standpoint. In fact, a lot of the tools didn't exist five years earlier than that. And the ones that got employed, nobody had heard of until COVID forced people to use them. And so there's a technology basis, I feel, that enabled this to some degree. Absolutely. The crisis, the telework crisis, forced innovation and creativity that didn't exist before. And um, agencies purchased what they need to purchase and supported telework. So the data is clear, but I'm, I'm going to say, Tom, I don't have any data to support what I'm about to say. But many of my students reported that telework changed my family structure. And what they said was, that as a result of telework, both parents were able to participate in after-school kid activity. Both parents took the responsibility of taking a kid to a doctor. Both parents could do volunteer work after work. And so it wasn't one or both parents who were going off early in the morning and coming back as ghosts in the uh, evening after kids go to sleep. Both parents are actively and able to actively engage in parenting, which I think is a quite fundamental difference, particularly in large city areas where people commute an hour and a half or two hours to and from work. Yeah, the commute is kind of a soul-crushing experience, I think, no matter where you are, unless you're you know, somebody that can have a helicopter or a limousine pick you up. And I think even the federal bureaucracy at the managerial and appointed levels, there's less and less of that going on than there used to be. Exactly. Let me ask you a devil's advocate question. I would trace the beginning of the erasure of the work and life boundary line to the advent of the BlackBerry, maybe the pager before that, but the BlackBerry and email meant people were on all the time. And the novelty kind of wore off after a few years. But what about the idea that when you say you're mixing your work life and your personal life throughout the day, you still at some point have to resist that tendency to have that dynamic go on till midnight? Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, some people manage it well and some people don't. But when you think about it and you think about the good news that has come about as a result of this technological revolution as a result of the ability of more people to do telework and more productivity, there's an ever-increasing pressure from mayors and real estate developers who have empty buildings and restaurateurs who want their boarded-up restaurants reopened to have the federal government force employees to do more in-person work. 
And I, I think, Tom, that that should be resisted because as a taxpayer, I want talented individuals who are really inspired to do their work, who want to stay with the federal government and who deliver more public service today than they delivered yesterday. So I think this telework program works. It's proven to work and it should be allowed to continue. All right. Now, if Microsoft could just fix Teams so that everyone didn't hate it, we'd really be in clover. (laughs) Exactly, Tom. (laughs) Bob Tobias was a professor in the key executive leadership program at American University. He's also the former NTEU president. As always, thanks so much. Thank you, Tom. It's a pleasure being with you today. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Kolmstetter, Chief People Officer at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you. Great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture. Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people. And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective. We get those different ideas and experiences And that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Excellent. We're we're going through a a culture project at our work. Oh, great. It's it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down. So I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance 
And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking, that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies, and we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're gonna go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it and building modules or, or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their, in their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um, this is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when as a leader that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on, on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency and I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions, and that leader then said, okay, I'm gonna go around the room and get everybody's opinion, and then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting, and said, go ahead, and I wanna hear from you. And I realized, in hindsight, I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way, and I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that, I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this 
particular decision. And it didn't go as I had hoped. And I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted, that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, mm -hmm. people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus? Isn't that a great title? I just love the title chief people officer and I think it's my dream job really to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with an intentional focus on culture because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth and um, engagement programs and listening programs, that's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would, in, would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how, how are things going? Um, because I, we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? 
So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure, either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally, that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life, and I think because, first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career, and that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a, a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to, you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married, for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, and I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence, and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank you. Uh, having known you now for seven or eight years, yeah. um, and work alongside you. Uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues, it's, uh, it's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.